Sunny 16 presents Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Music and Photography Podcast. I'm Billy Sanford, and on this episode, I'm excited to be talking to PJ Sykes. Hi, PJ. Hey, Billy. How are you? Doing very well. Thank you so much for uh, making some time for me. Absolutely. This is a pleasure. We were just chatting, and and of course, having read through your bio, I suspect you have a healthy amount of <laughs> experiences you can add to this discussion on both of these things music and photography of course you are a musician you've played in several bands concert photography you're doing uh, more video work these days you like to dj in your free time somewhere in the mix along that long journey you also started up your own independent uh, record label and and i want to talk to you about all of these things but obviously a creative person with a lot of drive to to create in a lot of different formats. So I thought maybe a, a fun, easy way to get into the conversation was to kind of ask about that creativity and maybe your earliest memories, sort of how did you get started down that creative path? Yeah, thank you for uh, mentioning all that. We, uh, I got stories. I'm looking forward to seeing <laughs> what you, what you want to, where you want to go with this. Uh, so early thinking about, you know, when I was a kid and you're still figuring things out. And so sometimes it's just a matter of, um, for me, it's always been being creative and then using whatever tools I have around me to try to make something. And I have two memories, I think, that kind of spark maybe the, you know, little story that kind of makes the origin or, or make it mix when you're, when you're a kid, it kind of makes sense. And maybe that's where a little seed starts, right? Uh, so the right. first one is I had one of those Fisher Price cassette recorder, little mini boomboxy right. things, whatever tape recorder <laughs> things, and I used to try to record stuff with that. So like rec- hold it up to the TV and record the music from like old cartoons, because uh, right. it was just it was it was like those sort of silent cartoons where it was just music and like sound effects and not really like talking. So I could then use that tape to like sort of use the use that soundtrack to to do something in real life with it. Yeah, okay, so kind of yeah. like recording recording sounds with that then to pair with or play with in real life to do something else with. So it's almost like right. recording um, not my music, but something else to to then use it as a soundtrack. Um, okay. And that kind of comes in handy later. Uh, but the second thing, I remember in elementary school, we had like an art class and um, the exercise was, you know, they give you a blank piece of paper. And then there's like a, a some kind of line or drawing or something that you're supposed to then use to to make the next part of the drawing, right? So, right. There's like three or four different versions of this line on the on the paper, and and all the boys who got the piece of paper that has, and this is a podcast, so I want to try to describe. It's a imagine like a flat line, but halfway through there's two like half circles like underneath, so like goes you know flat line, half circle under, fl- connected to a flat line. Anyway, it'll make sense when you uh, think about most boys took that and drew a car and the, those sort of half right. circles were, were tires, right? That's right. the bottom That's the bottom line of a cartoon car. Well, I saw that and kind of turned it sideways and made that some, some goofy kids like buck teeth, you know? And I was, <laughs> you know, like everybody else in the class was drawing a car or a house or whatever the, the thing, you know, like most everybody would draw. And I turned it sideways and did this weird thing with it and my art teacher recognized that creativity and i remember that reinforcement to this day of like oh 
I thought I, you know, I, then you look around, you're like, everyone drew a car. I guess I'm doing it wrong. And and they kind of reinforced that. No, I think, you know, it's, this is great. You, you thought, so, you thought about it differently, you know? Right. Um, well, so that reinforcement so you, sucks. Yeah, that makes sense. So you've got an audio example there with the recording of the music and the visual example there with the drawing. Do you feel equally drawn as a form of creative expression, or, or do you feel equally drawn to the visual and the audio parts, or, or are you more drawn to one side or the other? I guess. Yeah, I don't know. I, you know, I think music, you know, made more sense to me. Um, but, mm -hmm. you know, pretty quickly I wanted to make video or, you know, movies or special effects. I remember watching. Like I grew up on, you know, the Muppets and those kind of things and that kind of like those kind of bits and like silly things that but half of it was a, a vaudeville trick that was made for the camera. Right. A lot of that kind of early comedy and, and those kind of things. But I also remember watching like the Benny Hill show reruns and like they spit up the camera <laughs> or like, you know, they threw a dummy into the air and that landed and they stopped the camera and put the real person there. You know, like obvious right. things that you could re replicate. So I then once I had seen those kind of visuals and like, you know, it was also both those things are cued with music. They're heavily, you know, they're music shows or like variety shows, essentially. Right. And I wanted to, you know, I got into Star Wars and stuff when it was the least cool thing ever. You know, Star Wars was cool in the late 70s into the 80s and then it became super not cool. That's when I was into it. And then it came back and then now, All right. you know, literally, literally everywhere you can't, you know, but when I was super duper getting into it, it was like the, the least cool thing ever. And I was obsessed mm -hmm. because I realized that it was kind of DIY. Like they were making this stuff up. They were figuring out how to make these things. They had to reinvent the, the camera tricks and things like that to make them better. We have uh, ILM because of that. And we have Skywalker sound because of this. So those things started to connect with me in high school. And, right. um, then I started making little movies for projects in high school with friends. So we made like Man of La Mancha, we made Troy, we made um, some of these other movies. And I would use those ideas from like watching the Muppets and Benny Hill and <laughs> um, silly camera tricks. But, but to go back to the earlier example, I was using soundtracks and sound effects from the library on record and okay. things and I would tape them and then I would play them on a boombox so that when we were filming, you would hear the soundtrack from you know indiana jones when we were going into troy you know okay. so yeah. we, you know i was using all these components together i think that's you know music's always been my thing i guess but you know i think putting all those things together made a lot of sense to me and i, I guess i guess i kind of started doing that earlier than i realized and i it's kind of a full circle moment now that i'm doing more video work that i realized oh wow i've been really kind of trying to do this for a long time you know, it yeah, just kind of makes sure. it easier with the way technology is and the way cameras are and stuff. You can actually do those things a lot easier now than you could, you know, it, they're reasonably, you know, priced and things like that now. So storytelling, right, is a big yeah. part of all of this video, mm -hmm. photography, music. And of course, you know, in movies, they or, or even in Benny Hill, you know, with the Yakety Sax or right. with Raiders mm -hmm. of the Lost Ark and the March and and all of this, the degree to which they're using this background music to kind of, you know, they're telling the story and you're reacting to what's happening on the screen, but on some level that music is also reinforcing the, how they want you to react to the story. Yeah, do you, absolutely. I guess, were you, did you catch on to that early on and do you use that in your own video work these days? Try to uh, match the music with the, video content i guess absolutely you know i went through band symphonic band and, and marching band and, and those kind of things and so i have a lot of education in that and of course mm -hmm. you know a lot of it's playing stuff that's popular which is going to be soundtrack things but i was fortunate right. enough to be in a really good band program and we had a good marching band program and it maybe it seems weird now that back in the early days of marching band you basically marched out and played the fight song and maybe played a couple other songs and you marched back and or you did a parade you know there weren't shows necessarily and right. so by the time i was in marching band they started becoming shows um right. which really resonated with me because it was storytelling and it was visual and it was performance and it was musical um we did a world war ii show we did a baseball show which was funny because it's usually the halftime show for the football team 
uh mm-hmm. did right. all these other things you know but but you know using music to tell a story as well as the visual of the marching band and and those kind of things all these things kind of played in to the idea of what i've been doing so absolutely when i started making music um it's definitely an influence you know uh, i was in an instrumental band for a long time called uh a new dawn fades and um we i definitely i wouldn't say it's a themed album or like concept album or something like that but there's definitely a story being told uh perfect purposely in my mind um on the one record that we did complete right and it you know i don't need to tell you what it's about but there's definitely it's definitely yes to answer your question yes it's a very intentional storytelling and when you're a dj or when you're sequencing music for a playlist or uh Mm -hmm. for your own record or um any of those things or putting a photo show together uh, all that stuff is intentional for me it's it is storytelling it's trying to get people to connect the dots between different emotions or feelings or or things or vibes or whatever so all of this stuff has been played out in different versions of my art and video and photo and, and music. Okay. And and what instrument or instruments did you play in the symphonic band or marching band? Uh, yeah, I started on trumpet and then I moved to French horn. Um, okay. And in marching band, you don't really march with French horns. So I played uh, mellophone, <laughs> um, which is sort of right. in it's the equivalent of a French horn, but it's played like a trumpet. So it looks like a big trumpet, or between like a trumpet and a and a and a um, uh, I don't know what's the marching um, what's not the bear uh, whatever the other one is, <laughs> not the, not, you know, like the small tuba. What's it called? Uh, you know what I'm talking about? Right. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah it's so like I a big a, big trumpet. Right, and I was also a trumpet player. That was uh, so. I, I'm right there with you. I was in the in the school band for six years. So. How did you get into maybe more of the rock or the experimental or instrumental music? What was that something you were also doing growing up or did that come later? Yeah. I mean, I wanted, as soon as I started um, becoming a teenager, of course, music catches you in that age. Right. And um, I wanted to play guitar as soon as I saw one in person, like electric guitar, you know? Right. Um, right. and then, you know, just things started clicking and, you know, I kind of saw self-taught myself guitar, but nobody wanted to play with me cause I was too weird or too fast, or I wasn't playing the same things everybody else wanted to play. So I just d- didn't really line up. So I, I, by the time I graduated high school, I had started recording, writing and recording my first solo album. Uh, and I luckily mm-hmm. found my senior year of high school, uh, I met a younger college student who was coming to do music for the play I was in and they mm-hmm. had a live rock band on on the stage for the play it was okay. based on the who's concert where people were trampled to death right it, it, yeah the play is called ashes to ashes i think um and it's loosely based on that that real life event um and okay. so there's a there's a band and like you know things happen and it deals with all that stuff but this this person was writing music for the play like original music and they needed another guitar player so I tried out thinking, well, I'm not going to get it. I'm not the popular kid that plays guitar in this in this high school. But this guy doesn't know us. So I tried out and he picked me. Um, right. So the, I was my first band was performing in a theater production uh, with original music on a stage right. that was like eight feet in the air with no uh, <laughs> no um, railings uh, that we built ourselves, which was ridiculous. Um, <laughs> Right. I dyed my hair red without telling my parents and they came to opening night and, they, and that was the that's where the crossover happened for me <laughs> to being a weirdo creative i guess is um that moment but yeah so that person uh his name's jeff we ended up playing in a band together and um he produced my first solo album when i was in high school in that summer um so i had all those songs built up and he he kind of showed me the ropes a little bit yeah so uh, you know kind of happened at the at the same time as i was kind of almost graduating high school was i was finally self-taught enough and found out about drum machines and four tracks and things like that and started experimenting with recording and uh, luckily found somebody that could help me along the way right all right yeah it's it sounds almost as though you're repeating my teenage music story <laughs> back to me in the school band and drum machines and yeah and like synthesizers you know, of course were big at the time <laughs> yeah and you, i always say like you know the history of my label and, and my creativity and those kind of things that we're talking about it's not really unique. It's it's pretty much the history of of this time period and and how a lot of these things started. Some people got lucky and they had 
an older brother or sister or cousin that already had access to these things or a parent that was working in some of these things or they lived in a city that had things. I didn't have a lot of these avenues, so I had to kind of figure it out slowly, which I think has helped me because I had to, you know, I had to think differently and had to, you know, approach it differently until until I found the right avenue. Right. And so all of this is happening, maybe we should tell people, in, in Virginia. And that's yeah. where you have primarily lived and worked. Mm-hmm. Uh, Virginia, Washington, D.C., North Carolina, this sort of mid-Atlantic East Coast region. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, I'm from so Virginia. Were you, and were you just listening to, you know, music on the radio or that your friends were exposing you to, or were you checking out live music and kind of what, what were you into in the early days, I guess, maybe that helped influence you. Yeah. I I mean, growing up, I grew up in Lynchburg, which many Mm -hmm. people know as Jerry Falwell Liberty university. It's where all people go to sign up to try to run for Republican president now, you know, and there's a fallout. (laughs) Everyone's aware of this place now, but that's where I grew up. And when I grew up there, um, Jerry Farwell, the, you know, the the founder was still running around. I I ran into him in town and things like that. And, it, you know, but it was its own thing. It was like, yeah, like, ha- you know, not even half the town was sort of, you know, that camp. Right. The rest the rest was a normal, small southern town with its own, you know, post-Civil War type of stuff going on. But we had a lot of connections, you know, especially in the African-American community to Washington, D.C. So I heard go-go music early on, even before I didn't know what that was. Um, right. If you're don't, if you listening to this, you don't know what go-go music is. It's basically a regional music that still exists from, from Washington, D.C. that never quite got popular, but you do hear bits and pieces of it in things like Prince and other funk. But it's a, it's a unique sound for Washington, D.C. So throughout Virginia, you hear bits and pieces of, it, pieces of that music. Um, so I was exposed to some of that stuff before I really knew what it was, but uh, Liberty's hold on on Lynchburg kind of grew and grew and grew. The college got bigger and bigger and bigger, and it just didn't feel right. It, it wasn't. I I live in Richmond, which is you know a few hours away. Uh, once I visited VCU and saw like people from all over the world and different cultures and like you know people with tattoos and like just like lots of different cultures and things happening, I was like, that's this is the place for me. Like I need, right. I need that, you know, and that, that made sense to me. And, and so Lynchburg is kind of, uh, you know, now when I visit, it is basically Liberty University town. They've taken right. over everything. They've bought the mall. They've bought, and it's just, it's basically, you know, digested that town. Um, right. So it's no longer like a part of the town. It is the town, right? So people like me right. just kind of have left. It's right. just how it is, you know? Um, sure. Uh, so I what forgot it, what your original question was. Oh, what, what, what was <laughs> I? How did I get? How did I get into things like that? So yeah. Well, the um, musical influences based on yeah that the general region mm-hmm. where you grew up, yeah. I guess what you were listening to. Yeah. So that and, so that point is, you know, it's kind of a conservative town, and like you know, I was hearing classic rock out of Roanoke and things like that. So I was hearing a lot of classic rock and uh, that kind of stuff. And then you know, I started discovering bands on television and you know, alternative music in the '90s and you know, started latching onto those things because it made sense to me. It's like, oh, those are just weirdos wearing normal clothes, playing cool music, you know? That movement really spoke to me and it made sense. But I feel like I was always a late bloomer again because I didn't really have the radar for it yet. You know, I didn't have somebody handing it to me, so I had to find it. But once I did, you know, I dove in pretty quickly. (laughs) Yeah, It's like, all right. Right. Um, I always like to tell people, you know, back then you would get a record of your favorite band that you just found and you look in the liner notes and see who they thanked and be like, okay, these are the other bands I need to find where they talk about it in an interview or they wear a t-shirt, you know, and I think a lot of bands in the nineties, like especially Nirvana and things like that, they really did went out of their way to like promote things, you know, that weren't, they were their influences, you know? And so that's how we found out about right. a lot of stuff, which was really cool. Right. I mean, famously Kurt Cobain yeah. does that for Daniel Johnston and, you know, all, all these other people. Right. So that you know, that's that's how I fi- fi- figured it out. Once I once I was tapped into what was happening, and what was making sense to me, uh, floodgates open, yeah. and I would just go to the record stores and try to listen to things if I couldn't buy them, you know. And so, at what point did you start playing in bands, doing actual performing in front of crowds? I mean, aside from the the play experience, mm-hmm. 
was that after you moved to Richmond or were you still in Lynchburg at that point? I was still in Lynchburg and I hadn't moved to VCU uh, as a freshman. And that summer I was forming my first, well, I had played with some other folks in, in various like garage bands and they never really did anything. We play like the Boy Scout meeting or we play the church coffee house or we play, you know, like in front of some. So I had played a few times other than the play. Right with friends that were we were kind of in a band but we never really did anything you know we never recorded or we would just play a couple covers and whatever but the first real performance was that summer that i graduated from high school and i was recording my first solo album i was founding a band with some friends and we were going to play some of my music and some other music you know covers and things like that and the drummer his brother had a tragic accident and was paralyzed um so he couldn't play music with us because he was just too busy with family stuff and i had never right. booked a show or promoted a show or really played in public other than these little church things and you know i mean like i hadn't really done it yet right and so i said well we need to put on a benefit show for this for this kid you know that's our friend and so i immediately tried to do my first punk rock you know diy show and that was that summer right. and i booked i booked all the bands i had help from people and i, I asked a lot of questions and it was huge success you know hundreds of people came we had two different stages because there was too many people and too many bands um we raised <laughs> i don't know a thousand dollars um right. and and at the same time there was a swim meet for him happening across town so they were raising money and people were over there it was this crazy thing right and of course right. we, we couldn't we couldn't play with our drummer because he was dealing with family stuff uh who this benefit was for so we used a drum machine and we ended right. up playing last not as a headliner but because I was running the show and doing other things, we got busy. So we played for like five people or less, including my my dad and a couple that was making out in the back. Um, right. So all these things, you know, I learned how to do. But then I performed for five people or something, which was fine. We weren't very good. But to, to answer your question, it happened pretty quickly. And I guess from there, I was like, oh, this is you can just do this. You can just put on a show. You can like teenagers can do this right. with, with, with some adult help. You know, you can't just book a bar or whatever without. A little bit of help from adults at that point right. i think now there's probably spaces you can do that in but at the time it was it was a really it was a restaurant with a bar you know so yeah okay but um so what was what what was the next step in the evolution then from organizing this benefit concert for your friend how does it get to the next step where you're actually traveling mm -hmm. uh, outside of you know a local venue or whatever and actually doing shows in front of people that you don't know yeah so that, it's, that's gonna take a few years so between high school and maybe a few years later i went to vcu mm -hmm. came back to lynchburg um after a year but in that meantime i was i had joined or kind of helped form a band around the guy from the musical uh, from the from the play uh, right. jeff so we were in a band called uh, angels versus aliens and we put out a record we went to a role recording studio and i was doing community college and working at a record store at that point and we played a few out-of-town shows but um we really couldn't we were still kind of young and we were still trying to figure it out and um, for whatever reason we just never got out of town very often but we played quite a few shows and we started that's really where things started happening and this is all on, on my friend jeff's record label and at some point I wanted to release some other weird music and things like that and kind of give give myself a chance to to try something else. So I founded my little record label in 2001 mm -hmm. called Sharp Records. And um, around that same time is, is when this band's breaking up. So shortly after I founded my record label and that band kind of dissolves, I, for, I joined another band and we started playing out of town a little bit. And then that and then I kind of leave that band and start my first own band. Uh, my, and that's a new Dawn Fades. Um, right. So for the next six or seven years, we did a lot of shows all over the place, you know, up and down the East Coast, you know, North Carolina a lot. So, you know, by 2001, things are taking off. So, the, and this is one of the things we chatted about when I reached out to ask if you'd like to to chat was about road stories. Any, any particular fun or scary mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, experiences? For, I, you know, I've heard some people talk uh just all sorts of things can happen when you're uh oh yeah traveling around so what what are some of your recollections from that time exciting fun scary yeah i mean we were never again? oh yeah i think you know it's it's hard not to look back and be like yeah those were tough times and like i was poor and maybe i didn't eat 
um, sometimes, or I slept in my car to do things. I think for the purpose of this podcast, I'll kind of tell you a little bit of the the music photo side of things. So around when I was doing a new dawn okay. fades, I started taking pictures of bands and stuff that we were playing with, or even um, in AVSA days, because nobody was really taking our pictures. So uh, most people were using disposable cameras and things like that, and they just weren't very good. So I started doing video for bands, you know, and that was boring because I had to stay in, in the back with a tripod. <laughs> uh, and it was just, it just right. wasn't fun and it wasn't exciting. And, the, and and it was cool to document the whole thing or whatever. And then I couldn't share those videos because it was like a one-to-one thing. I could show you the video. There was no YouTube yet, things like that. It was just really hard. So I started, right. this is a sidebar. I try to, I, tr- I came up at the time there used to be these little pop-up shops or like these little video shops that would c- compile your home videos. And you you mm-hmm. could get a you know bunch of copies made for your family, and I said, "Well, right. hey, if I could get a job there, or if I could just get all these bands to send me tapes, I could make a video compilation and get them copied at this little mom and pop video store that does wedding videos and stuff." And so I started right. doing that, and um, but none of this stuff made sense because we didn't have YouTube, and it was just pr- prohibitively expensive for a small thing. So right. I started switching to photos. I started doing mm-hmm. photography because it made more sense and I could get more of those things done and I could carry that camera when we played shows. So now I'm right. in this band and doing on phase, we're touring around doing photos. It's not going great. Usually we're, we're not a popular band. We have, we, we get, we get a lot of bad luck as most bands do. We were supposed to play South by Southwest and it fell through. We were supposed to play um, Montreal pop festival and it fell through. We were supposed to play, you know, just, just things got happening right. to us, you know, and it was frustrating. Uh, but the photo thing started working for me. So I said, hey, why don't I focus on that and see if I can um, w- see if I can do photography more and do the band less. You know, let's just try that for right. a minute since that seems to be working and this other thing is getting frustrating. So this is the road story. A new Dawn Fades are booked. We have four or five, six shows and most of them are falling through. And we have, you know, days of travel in between shows. It just doesn't make sense to take off work when every paycheck is is crucial. Um, so if I'm going to take time off of work, it better be for something, right? Um, right? So I said, Nathan, let's just cancel the remaining couple of shows that we had booked that are falling. They're already going to fall through. And I'm gonna, we'll go play the one show in North Carolina. And then I'm mm-hmm. going to go try to photograph some bands with my remaining couple of days that I have that were for tour. And he said, great, let's do that. So I went down to North Carolina and played a show. I think it was with H.C. McIntyre's former band, Bella Fea, and some other people. I can't remember who else. We used to play shows with her all the time. It was something like that in North Carolina. It was with a noise band or whatever. Nathan takes my gear. And, and I already worked that day. I worked that day, drove down to North Carolina, played a show, you know, 10 o'clock at night or whatever, 11 o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. Got in my car after three or four cups of coffee and drove to florida and i have like raisins and bagels and water in my car and i have like a hundred dollars in cash total you know to make it home and get gas and whatever else i don't have any plan but my friend i had booked uh this band q and not you that was on discord for a long time um i had booked them in richmond and i reached out to them and said hey you're playing some shows with interpol down in florida I got some other friends that are down in Florida on tour. Can, can I get a photo pass? And they said, sure, come on down. Okay. So like, great. So I had cool. two, two nights in a row with Q and you and Interpol. So I drove all the way to Florida with no plan. They know where to stay, you know, just raisins and bagels and water to eat. And, uh, you know, Florida is a big state. So from Virginia oh, to, yeah. <laughs> to, to, uh, to the border of Florida is a whole day of driving. And then mm-hmm. the first show was in Fort Lauderdale, which is another five, six, seven hours. Oh. Um, oh, yeah. so I, I just worked all day, played a show, drank coffee, drove all the way to Florida, slept in my car for an hour, drove to Fort Lauderdale, woke up in the car there in the morning. And I was like, all right, now what do I do for the next few hours till the show? And I never photographed a big show yet. Like I, I just done punk rock right. things and small venues and things. I, I don't know how this works. And now I've driven all this way and I have <laughs> no money to get home. If, if something really goes wrong, I can, I guess I could ditch my car and buy a bus ticket. I don't know. You know, so, um, right. That's when I found out that the rule is first three songs, no flash. I'm like, did right. I just drive all the way down to Florida for three songs? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? I completely didn't know what I was doing, but I knew that I right. had to try. 
So, okay. So I do that. I get, you know, in QNet, you were late to the show. So they were like, we don't know who you are. You don't have a photo badge. You don't have a ticket. And the band pulls up and they miss sound check for whatever reason. So they're running late and I'm like, oh my God. So they get me in, whatever, it's fine. And, you know, I, I shoot, you know, QNet U and I do Interpol. And then I'm like, cool. And then I'm just trying to meet people so I can like maybe crash on their, you know, I'm doing the DIY punk thing. I'm like, is there other people I can meet at the show that maybe let me sleep on their couch so I don't have to sleep in my car? Maybe somebody will help me out. That's what we did on tour. We would just ask people in the crowd, like, can we stay at your house? You know, that was what we did in the previous tours. Right. And uh, never, never really found anybody to, to put me up. So I just drove to um, a Publix uh, grocery store and parked it under a tree and just fell asleep in the car, you know? <laughs> yeah. So now I'm sleep deprived. I've driven for a whole day. I've played a show. And now I have to drive all the way to the other side of Florida to their next gig, you know, and try to find that with without any, you know, real maps or whatever, just using my, you know, little paper map. I go to that right. show. The the si- sidebar of that star- story is I'm sitting outside the venue. It's it, I'd seen a, a an Iraq war protest that, that day and I photographed that because it was like a one year after the Iraq war started or something like that. Um, right. So that was cool. Just got to see that. And then... Um, I'm outside the venue waiting for the show to start and people are trying to, you know, sell tickets or something like that. And the, for some reason at this venue, the, the tour buses had to park across the street from the opening of the venue, the front of the venue, there's no side street or back, back lot or whatever for the buses. So this guy is wearing a button up, you know, white pressed t-shirt, or you know, dress shirt tucked into jeans or something. And over top of the dress shirt, uh, is a brand new Guns N' Roses Appetite for Destruction t-shirt that he just probably bought at the mall, like brand new, okay. like no, no, it's like, you know, and he's like looking for tickets or whatever. And he, he stops a guy walking in front of me that's wearing a suit and this is the middle of Florida, right? Like this guy's wearing a suit. Hey, uh, do you need any tickets or can I buy some tickets or whatever? And he's like, no thanks. I'm good. And it was, you know, um, the lead singer of Interpol, like, like the guy's <laughs> wearing a suit in the middle of Florida you know, walk he's like got a press he's got a you know vip badge or whatever on like this guy's just like right so yeah these little things that happen and then so that show went well and i i drove to a friend's house that i met on the previous tour stayed with that person um they fed me thankfully and then i drove to savannah georgia i think and um, surprised some other friends bands that were playing a house show somehow i found the address of this house show which you know and i just show <laughs> up and that guy fed right. me and let me stay there and we hung out but yeah, so these are this is just like I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't know how to be a photographer. Right. I just tried all these things, slept in my car, uh, got back. I, I I slept in Savannah and you know that's like eight hours from Richmond, and I had to work that next day. And I called them and I'm just like, look, I'm gonna be late. And they're like, oh, what's wrong? I'm like, I'm in Georgia. <laughs> uh, you know, basically, since, since I left work the other day, I went straight to playing shows and photographing bands for three. I haven't stopped since I left work. I haven't showered. Oh, wow. You know, I slept in my car. Like I drove yeah. back, got a shower, and went to work that day. So I worked two shifts on the other end of that. Um, oh wow! So that's that's how I you know figured out how to be a photographer and a musician, all these creative things, um, suffering right. through trial and errors. And um, yeah, so there's your road story, I guess. The combination. <laughs> it it was that was a great combination and a lot to unpack there because I you know before we get to well, I, I want to circle back because you talked about Cherub uh, yeah. a little bit ago. And I, I want to come back to that. But since we've gotten into the photography part of it, uh, a few of those things that you mentioned, I, I sort of guessed that maybe that's how you're, how you got started in music photography as being a musician and playing shows and then you're there, you got a camera, you start taking pictures and it just sort of evolves that way. I didn't know, but I assume that was maybe how that mm-hmm. that came up. But sort of what was your, I mean, you know, the three songs, No Flash, and maybe not everyone listening knows that. I, I, would, I have heard that before. And, you know, concerts, as you mentioned, are challenging environments to shoot in, right? Poor yeah. lighting. Mm-hmm maybe not the best angles you would love to have plus other photographers yeah music there's people behind you screaming exactly so what was your background in photography before that sort of where were you at in terms of gear and skill level would you say self-taught you know when i was in younger you know we we i had like 
my parents' camera and I would take pictures of my Star Wars toys set up and different things. I would take it to summer okay. camp and I would try different things. With, so I, I had experience with taking pictures and making things with cameras and things, you know, just like the other stuff that I've done. Um, right. But I have no, still to this day, I have no formal education um, in many of these things. I'm just a DIY right. creative person that it figures these things out. So when I started doing video for bands, it was, you know, just using a super eight or high, you know, the high eight, uh, cameras, um, right. before, you know, the, it was sort of the t sort of between tape and digital kind of world. And then I switched to film cameras cause that was still cheaper and more, you know, they just looked better. Um, right. so I was using point and shoot film cameras for a while that were better. And then I started, then I bought my, my first Canon whatever that was a rebel i think it was called maybe i forget what yeah. they were called but you know so i was shooting film until that was until that camera was stolen i was shooting film way into the the early digital stuff um okay. and i was processing it because i was working at ritz camera i would get discounts and things like that and scan them sure. um, so i was the, i was the black and white film guy even though i wasn't really doing it for like aesthetic reasons necessarily it was more just like i liked it and it felt good and i was i was still happy with the weird things I was coming up with. Um, but I was right. still trying, I, I could only get 400 speed film a lot of times. I was just trying different things, you know? Um, sure. so forced into getting a digital camera because it being my film camera being stolen really up my, um, skill level. Cause I could see it immediately. I could try more things. It didn't cost me anything to experiment. I didn't have right. to wait to find out, you know, Oh, that didn't work. Let's try something else immediately, you know? Right. So, you know, I mean, I, I just don't, you know, for me, I'm not, I'm not a gear person. Um, mm -hmm. I like to use my brain and my ideas to try to come up with what I want to do. And then I use whatever tools I have to do it. Sure. Um, so that's always been my philosophy. And then, you know, um, I don't like a lot of, I don't like to carry a lot of stuff at shows. So I <laughs> right. tend to, I tend to have as compact a thing as possible and like barely a backup of those things, you know? So I can get in mm -hmm. and out. I could be, I could be getting closer. I, you know, most of the stuff I like to do is closer. I was shooting with a flash for a long time and doing flash right. photography. Cause when I was doing that at the time, I think clubs mostly have modernized to a point where lighting is a better situation now. But when I was right. doing it, it was still pretty, it was still really dark <laughs> and a lot of people were smoking still, you know, smoking right. in, in clubs and stuff. And you know, the lights were the, the old, you know, hot, you know, glowing lights that oh, were too yeah. close to the band and those kind of things. So I was using like, and the flash is not going to bother you as much in that situation because it's just already grimy and weird and things are happening. So, um, <laughs> right. So a lot of the earliest, earlier stuff I had done was like with flash kind of like the Charles Peterson. If you don't know that name, he's like the early sub pop grunge photographer, right. um, yeah. that kind of style of, of, using the flash and then leaving it open for a while and getting smears and stuff like that or using other people's flashes. I was doing that for a while. I would watch other people who were using flash cameras and I would time my picture with theirs to get their flash in mine. Okay. Yeah. So I would use their, right. their, their stuff <laughs> um, to use it in my, my work. So a lot of that's just right. like paying attention to what's going on. Oh yeah, for sure. And so, you know, and, and I'll post a link for sure to your website in the show notes. And just as you're going through there, of course, you've had you, you've you've shot a lot of different artists, different type of artists, different venues. You've got a lot of that uh, Charles Peterson type scenario look with the smaller mm -hmm. venues and the mm -hmm. high energy shows. But then you've got like Aziz Ansari, the Foo Fighters, Bob Mould, yeah. Iron and Wine, uh, Arcade Fire. And you've had pictures in Rolling Stone and Spin and Time and the Washington Post. And <laughs> that's just quite an impressive ex uh, resume, in, in my humble opinion, anyway. Oh, thank but, you. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah. Any particular of those experiences that you've had to, to photograph live music or live performances in general, any, any of them that were either just because of the vibe of the show itself or because the event was particularly meaningful to you that you, that stands out to you. Yeah. Um, you know, Foo Fighters have been one of my favorite bands since they came out. Right. And some of the earlier interviews I did when people were interviewing me about being a photographer, they would ask, ask well, what band, if you could, you know, like, what would be the band, you know? <laughs> 
And I would always be right. like, Foo Fighters, right? Like, who's going to call me to do the Foo Fighters? No, like, come on. They could have anybody they could ever want. They got Danny Clinch, you know? Um, right. You know, why are they going to call me, right? So, you know, but it was just one of those things, right? So I never ever thought that I would ever really get to use my work in a way that we sh would be shared with the band or anything like that, right? So right. the story goes, and I'll leave out some details, but um, I was having a really bad day at work. And I was going to go see the Foo Fighters. This is like 12 years ago. I don't remember now. And they were doing the Wasting Light tour. And, you know, I had tickets to go see them in D.C. And we were just going to go to the show, have a good time. You know, that was fine. You know, um, right. and I had joked on Twitter. I said, hey, you know, Dave Grohl never calls me to take pictures of his band. And it was supposed to be funny. Right. Come on. <laughs> like, okay, like you just right. said, well, who? Why would they? Why would they? Like they could have everybody. You know, why would they pick me? um right and uh, a, a notable musician that i'm friends with saw it and had and knows them and got me a photo badge and said hey have a good oh, time wow. if you want to use it great like i saw your tweet <laughs> i was like what the hell um i was like well, wow okay that's cool um because yeah, you know, usually so. you have to but at this point i had made a enough of a name and you know met people and done things it wasn't like i was a nobody but i wasn't you know certainly you know again they could have anybody why would they hire me so usually to back it up if you've never done live concert photography on that scale of a band you have to have mm -hmm. a reason to be there there's already going to be 30 or 40 photographers sometimes in the pit for three songs right. sometimes you only get one song and they'll bring other people out for another song it depends on the situation it's not fun i don't find it be, to be fun it, you, right. everyone's getting roughly the same shot you know right. and it's just it's not great the stage is a lot higher than you think you're a lot closer it's like looking up their nose um, right and you're and it's loud and you know it is what it is right you know you don't get to be on the stage you don't get to be in a cool spot you're rushed in there you're rushed out it's just it's just chaotic it's not it's it, you should do it if you can it's fun i guess but like right. it's it's a lot of setup and a lot of waiting around and a lot of work and a lot of hassle to get something that's not that exciting usually in my right. opinion um i i prefer the smaller more intimate setting so i get the photo badge or whatever and um i go i had to argue with them to bring my camera in even though i had a photo badge which is a super hassle and then a lot of times if you get a photo badge and you don't have a ticket you can't see the show you gotta you have to leave unless mm -hmm. you buy a ticket they don't give you a ticket they give you a, a photo badge and you have to leave or you have to wait in the you have to wait in some office in the in the bottom of the stadium between bands right. and that sucks so you know i had a ticket i tried to get back to my seat and they're like oh you can't come in here with the camera and all this and i was like so i got finally got in there with my camera and all that stuff sat down and i told my wife i was like oh my god the hassle of this is just not worth it and she said <laughs> my, my wife said if you don't go photograph the foo fighters i don't want to hear about it for the rest of our lives <laughs> can you can you do that no you're right right you're right i better go do this <laughs> <laughs> right. I'll, I'll regret it right so you're right so i missed the next band basically to go back down there and get ready because you have to go back and they bring you out into the pit and everyone's back mm -hmm. there like when you have to basically sign your right away to the photo if you take any mm -hmm. pictures you basically agree that they can use them if they want and they you know you you kind of you're in agreement that you are doing this work for a certain reason and that they have rights as well you kind of just have to sign that right. away by doing this and everybody knows it and it sucks but that's just that's just how it works um be the beastie boys one i signed one time it said forever and ever in the universe and outside of, it was like crazy it was like you know they're <laughs> they were thinking in the future like if we use photos in mar on mars or something that they could do that it was you know a tongue-in-cheek right. way of their legal thing or whatever but anyway but we bring they, they bring us out and everyone's like oh we can't photograph the crowd we can't do this we can't do that and no one's told me any rules I haven't said any contract, but I know that that's the rule, right? So mm -hmm. the first thing that happens is Dave Gold comes out. He runs right into the, the the center stretch that goes into the crowd. He just runs out there. So you're not going to take a picture of the Foo Fighters without Dave Grohl. If you're not supposed to no. take a picture of the crowd, what are you supposed to do for the first three songs if he's out there for one song, <laughs> right? And most bands, right. if you notice, will, will be low light or they won't be the full band or they do all these weird things the first three songs if they don't want to be photographed. I don't, the Foo Fighters aren't really right. that way, but um a lot of bands are so anyway i just turn my camera around and, and you can see the photo it's like dave grohl like holding his hand up and the whole you know arena that you can see which is like a third of the arena is going nuts 
They've been waiting months right. for this night. They've been waiting all day. They waited through all those other bands. They've had a couple beers. And now it's the moment they've been waiting for for months, right? That's the photo. Right. I took that picture and I said, well, I don't need anything else. I took some more pictures. I haven't looked at them in years. That's the photo. <laughs> I put my camera away. Right. I didn't go back out. I went to my seat and my wife said, did you get it? I'm like, I think so. I think I got a good shot. Enjoyed the show. That was it. I had no reason to publish them. I put it right. on my website and I and it was in a photo show. I don't know how this happened. Later, I think it was like two or two or three years, the two almost to the day of that concert. I'm going through Twitter and I see my photo on Twitter. I'm like, how did that get up there? Someone must have found it on the website and used it. And I'm like, wait, it says Foo Fighters tour dates or something. And they used my Foo Fighters photo. Oh, Foo wow. Fighters. Yeah, I don't know how it happened. Uh, I think yeah. I think what happened was there's a promoter in Africa when they went there, and maybe they used it. Mm -hmm. And then okay. the Foo Fighters used it. And anyway, so that's kind of the weird story of of like <laughs> uh the goal, you know, when you ask like what's the biggest band or where do you want to photograph was the Foo Fighters. Now it kind of messed me up because it was like that was the unachievable goal that I like to have. Like you're right. never gonna be you're never gonna reach that peak, so just keep trying. Right. And then what happens when you get there? Then now what? <laughs> like what are you gonna do? Um, right. so yeah, I, you know, it was just kind of a crazy experience and, um, I don't know, you know, I, the next day it happened and they gave me photo credit. I got them to do that and all that stuff, which is cool. They've been crediting photographers ever since. Yeah. Yeah. That is very cool. And, and thank you for, uh, reinforcing that, that idea is <laughs> always, nice. and I wasn't, I mean, yeah, I wasn't supposed to take that picture yeah. and I wasn't supposed to be there and I was and I broke all the rules and I, this is the last thing I'll say. When I took yeah. that, I said, well, if I'm breaking all the rules and I know this is a good picture because that's the, I can tell that this is the this is the emotion that we're supposed to be seeing in this. This is the this is the moment right at the concert um, right. that represents the energy. Um, and I said, well, if Dave Grohl ever sees this picture, he'll probably think it's cool. Right. Versus the right. picture that everybody else is taking night after night after <laughs> night, which is cool. But it looks like any other concert. So I broke all their I broke all their rules and then they ended up using it. So. And what's that say? Break right. the rules. Punk rock. Yeah, I there guess, you, you know? go. <laughs> so, you know, apologies for moving backwards in the story, but like no, I, no, no, yeah. I did I did want to talk about Cherub because yeah, part yeah. of this whole idea, uh, music and photography is sort of something to focus the conversation around, but it, at a at a higher level, it's about creativity in general. And and through these conversations, what I have found, you know, creative people, they, they find multiple ways. Well, in, in, in part, it's the underlying theory behind music and photography. A lot of people are into both of these things. But as it turns out, creative people are into a whole lot of things and a whole lot of different ways to express that creativity. And as it applies to music or photography specifically, if there is something they want to try or something they want to do, but there isn't an easy or, or maybe not even an easy way, maybe the thing just doesn't exist at all, uh, a camera or uh, an emulsion or something like that, they they create it themselves right 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 to use it and so that's sort of a little bit made me think of someone who is a musician they want to release music and so why not create your own record label right but but why don't yeah. you tell us more about how all of that happened how that unfolded for you yeah and so the story of the record label is like i said kind of similar to a lot of things in the 80s and 90s i'm the far end of that, like the beginning of the digital age with this, right? But it's right. still but it still stems from that and that and that idea, right? The DIY punk rock or whatever aesthetic. Well, don't wait for somebody to tell you it's okay. Give yourself permission, you know, to do something. Um right. but it, it so I always say it was kind of a joke, right? Um mm -hmm. hey newspaper, write about my band. Mm -hmm. Doesn't sound as cool as Hey, I'm PJ from Cherub Records. I have this band, and uh, we're putting a record out. And da da da. It's the same dude. Like it doesn't, right. But, but right. <laughs> but you gave yourself that authority to say, "No, we're doing this. It means right. this much to us." And early on, it was that's that's the approach to it. It was just a way to like put something on the back to kind of keep 
multiple things together that weren't exactly the same project, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, friends, bands, weird side projects, put it all together. And that way, over time, it tells a longer story, connects all these ideas together. And so Cherub is, is basically just a group of friends and related things. So right. if you enter from the solo record I made during the pandemic, Fuzz, great. There's a whole bunch of stuff you missed from 20 years ago. Maybe you care about it, maybe you don't, but, but right. there it is. It's easy to see. It's connected. If you care about those things, maybe there's something there for you. Maybe there's not. If you enter from finding one of those old records, well, I did some new stuff and I'm going to be doing those other things, right? Like, it's just kind of right. a, I don't know, it's just kind of a neat way. So that that was the idea. It was just kind of like uh, giving yourself, you know, that authority or that permission or um, taking yourself seriously enough that you're doing something, you know, right? Um, and presenting it in a way that to other people that that you care about what you're doing. Yeah, that, and that's so all it is. <laughs> well, so beyond you know the gratification that you get as a musician playing and promoting your own music, or as a photographer, you know, seeing an image you took, you know used widely across the world I, I mean that's incredibly gratifying kind of what is the I, i'm sure also gratifying but kind of a, is there any difference when you get to for example for one of your friends in a musical project that you're not playing music in but you're getting the opportunity to promote that out to other people for your friend yeah kind of what mm -hmm. it what how is that experience like for you i guess yeah i mean not everybody wants to do all the things or they don't know how to do it or they need help or they just don't want to do it whatever it is you know um right i i find that i like doing it and that's kind of why i was doing some of those things for myself um or right. i couldn't find somebody to do it or i was like well it's just easier if i do it or i have like i like having control over my own work right i think that's just 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 the nature of it so you know I, yeah all of these things, like I know that some of these things, you know, are more exciting or more, you know, they see, you know, like I said, you can see that picture all over the place or you can hear this record nowhere. You know, it's funny because the music stuff takes a lot longer to make often. It costs more money, takes a lot more hours, takes a lot more different skills than taking one picture for one second and putting it on the internet, right? I mean, yeah, there's a lot of years right. of skill and, and things that come with that, of course being in the right place, working, networking, getting all those things that, that takes a lot of time, but it applies to many, 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 many images instead of just one versus making a record that takes, you know, this many hours of playing the material and writing it and then recording it, you know, and then the, I don't know, I get satisfaction from all that stuff, uh, especially from helping other people. I'm more of a person that likes to show you how to do it so you can do your, do it yourself and encourage you to start your own thing. Um, right. I think I think that's I think that's the the most enjoyable part. Like I'm not mm -hmm. trying to hide any secrets. Like I had to figure it out. I want to give you the shortcut so you don't waste all the time that I wasted. Um, right. You can just you can do right. your craft and get to the point with this other stuff. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So helping people put their stuff out and then kind of tell telling them how a good way to try doing it themselves or encouraging them is really rewarding. Sure. And one of the other cool things I thought about the the cherub website was the archive section where you've got like all of the old show posters from that really do have that aesthetic of what people yeah. were, would probably be imagining in their mind um were you the artistic force behind all of that or much of that over the years sometimes yeah i mean i i make the flyers if i have to and somebody else can do them yeah. or we'd have somebody else do them or somebody else made him for a show we played on and I would always try to take the poster digital poster and, and archive it. Um, and part of that, so the part of that, part of the chair record story is telling the longer story, as I mentioned earlier. Right. And part of that's right. through the archive that you're mentioning. So mm -hmm. who cares about a dude on fades or whatever band I'm in? Most people don't like, frankly, they just don't. I'm like, well, more you know, people know me well, more for my music photography and other things not my personal music but you know playing shows most of those flyers are places they have closed and we mm -hmm. and those bands some of them went on to do things some of them didn't or those members from those bands went on to, so to me that's telling a longer history especially of this area of virginia you know and nearby cities 
uh, of what was happening during that time period. And it's important to archive that for that reason, for, for right. that reason, for telling the story of um, what happened in the last 20 years in Virginia, not my story, the story. Right. So it's like, oh, right. these are all the like somebody's going to write a book about something. Right. And they're going to be needing materials and they're going to find it on my website. That's the whole point. Right. Uh, right. I'm writing a book about just... Charlottesville. Here's this flyer that we just found and it has this information I've been looking for. Great. You know, it's a, it's right. like that's that's the reason for the for the archive. It's more for that seriously than it is to show you that I played a bunch of shows and we made some stupid posters. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. You know, it's cool. It looks, right. you know, it's, I like that part of right. it too, but really the idea is that sharing of information and archiving of a larger network of things that are happening. And, you know, you always look back at these shows and you go like, well, we played a show with that person. Wow. Look at who they are now. Or, you know, they're doing a movie or they're, they're in a bigger band or they, they're now a doctor or they're a chef or whatever it is they do, you know, but we played a show with them at this tiny place and we had a good time that night, you know? And that happens all over. It's not unique to what I'm doing. It's just I'm capturing my little slice of it and trying to share it. Um, right. And I've donated a lot of flyers and things like that, extra flyers and things to the Valentine Museum here in Richmond, which is like a Richmond History Museum, things mm -hmm. like that so that people can find them later. Because I think that's part of the importance of doing this label for me. It's an archive label. It's archiving this experience of my work and my friend's work and everything else around it. So part of part of the record label is giving this material away online and and making sure it's categorized in the museum or something for anybody else to use for whatever reason later. Right. Well, and like you said, it's it's just another aspect of storytelling, right? That's one yeah. of these common themes that go through through all of these topics, really. Yes. Yeah. And that, and that, that's what I've ultimately come down to, and that's what I'm interested in, and and I'm partaking. I'm, you know, I'm an active participant in this story right now, but sometimes right. I'm not like, you know, I'm taking a break or I'm doing this other thing, um, but things are still happening around me and are part of these things like chair records or the, the bands that have been photographing or whatever. Um, yeah. And every once in a while you get to do something bigger and it ends up in a bigger spot, but most of it's in that small to me medium range, you know? Right. Okay. Well, so, and so just, you know, for anybody who might be curious about the lineup, is is there any, would you point them to the compilation, the 20-year compilation, or to one of the bands in particular, or your own album, Fuzz, that you mentioned? What If, if you were just going to throw one thing out there for people to kind of jump in and get a small taste, what, where would yeah. you point them? I mean, if you're listening to this podcast and you're and you're interested in the weird creative things I've been talking about, I mean, go go to my solo record. I'm not just saying that because I think that would just make the most sense. I made a solo right. record when I, when we were all stuck at home in 2020, right. and and it you know it deals with a lot of those issues. And me living in Richmond, we had months of daily protests over the George Floyd murder, and right. um, you know the Richmond monuments eventually came down. If you're not aware. You know, we had uh, a projector of George Floyd's face was projected onto uh, the former Confederate monument, and that was on the cover of National Geographic. So that was happening at the same time as the pandemic was unraveling, and we were all stuck right. at home in, in the place that I live. So this record kind of deals with some of those things. Um, so if you want to catch up on, you know, and I recorded it all here in this room that I'm talking to you from in okay. my house. So it's, you know, it, it's I think that's a good place to start if, if you've been enjoying this conversation. And, you know, if, if that floats your boat, it's, you know, it's called fuzz. It's kind of, you know, heavier melodic stuff in, in the vein of who's could do Bob mold kind of that kind of punk rock right. stuff. Um, after that, yeah, the 20th anniversary comp is, is a good place. And that has a lot of like archive stuff. Um, the 15 year anniversary comp has a little bit more of stuff that was kind of already out there and was just collected there. Mm -hmm. The 20th anniversary is more of a deep archive of things that maybe weren't out there. So they're like just okay. hiding out. So maybe go back to the 15th and kind of sample a bunch of different bands and stuff like that. Um, it'll right. give you a better, better picture of, of the, of the, when, when Cherub was at its most active. Right. Okay. And so, you know, we talked a little bit about the video work and some of the photography and the music stuff we've talked to up till now has been, 
you know, not as recent. The video stuff is what you're more focused on more recently. Is that right? Yeah. For the last two years, I've been the videographer at Richmond Ballet, which is a regional okay. ballet company, um, but it's a pretty esteemed company. And one of the projects I was most proud of, I basically, whenever we had a guest choreographer making new work, like a new ballet, mm -hmm. and these are like short 20 minute pieces and they could be about anything. I would interview the guest choreographer about the work and then make a like three to five minute video um, with B-roll. And it's just them rehearsing and building the ballet in practice, you know, um, B-roll that's cut over the interview, right? Well, right. when I got hired on that, that, that's, that was what they were asking me to do. And I was like, well, we need, we need to try to push the boundaries a little bit of, of the storytelling, you know, and in this, this last past year season, um, the first one was about the new artistic director and, you know, how he moved from China and his, and then he moved from Tulsa to Virginia and all these things. And like, it was about building community and meeting people in, in, in Richmond. So I got to tell a little bit more of his background story with some other things that weren't just ballet. Right. right. But what I'm really proud of is the next one. Um, and you can watch this on my website, these videos. The next one, the guest choreographer was her piece was about uh, interrace uh, relationships. Her parents are you know ones um, African American, ones white. Um, so it's it's something she's been talking about in her work, right? So her ballet is about that, and some of the music is like it's just soul music, um, mm -hmm. Ray Charles and things like that, Danny Hathaway. Right. So it's like this cool soul music with ballet dancing, and and she mixes oh, hip hop wow. moves in there. She does a lot of hip hop dancing and stuff, so she mixes that in. So it's just a really cool thing. And I said, well, you know, you're talking about this stuff. You realize that the Lovings are from Virginia. I mean, Lovings versus Virginia is the court case that went to Supreme Court and gave us the right to marry different races. That happened in Virginia. And that happened not that far from where we are, like right. 20, 20, 30, 40 minutes away. That's where, that, that's, where, that's where they lived. What about we go up and check that out? And maybe we can just film a few little bits here for promotion and you can just so you can see it because you're not you, right. she's from she's from canada but lives in new york so i was able to she's like well, why don't we film there why don't we just not just go there to look at it let's film there i'm like okay so i was able to get her inside the jail cell where these mm. people were held captive for being married mm. i put her in the jail and let her go walk around this rusted out jail that's a historic monument that's sealed off oh, usually and then I got All her right. in the courtroom where it actually went down before they went to the Supreme Court. So we get to film in these places and tell oh, the wow. story. And that's kind of what I've been doing, you know, collecting all these different things, you know, and like, I don't, I didn't know much about ballet, but I knew about art and storytelling and emotion and like, you know, telling sure. these different things and all these things that I've been doing kind of came together and, and able to tell this cool story about her work, about her personal story, you know, and then also tied in with, the local story as well as the national story. And if you're not aware, as well as the Lovings case is cited in how we end up getting uh, the right for same-sex marriage. Mm -hmm. So that's that's an important case that is now coming up again, unfortunately, in, in the way that people are trying to destroy these rights. Um, right. So it's an important topic that's not just history. It's, it's ongoing. Um, so right. that's kind of what I've been doing, you know, doing it with video instead of doing it with photo or doing it with, um, sound, it's just putting it all together. Right. And, and that's theme, you know, doing any sort of documentary and work, uh, completely fits with how the conversation has unfolded at that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, and, and what a cool experience. I definitely encourage everybody to check those out on your website. So what I, I guess what's next for PJ Sykes? <laughs> I don't know. You know, I, I get curious and I do things and, um, you know, I just switched, switched my job up again and I'm, I'm doing storytelling for a tech company now and telling, uh, the story of how we're integrating technology and in smart homes. So I'm doing that and learning that industry now, I'm trying to do switching it from art to more of a, a different industry. But as far as me personally, um, I've been working on a lot of videos for people editing. People will send me footage of things that they're working on and I'll edit it. Um, so I'm working on something I can't, I, a couple of things I can't really talk about yet. But um, most recently I did one for 
man, why am I blanking her name? It's on my website. Let me just look at it. Uh, oh, yeah, Nicole Young from Eternal Summers just sent me some footage. She lives in Roanoke, a few hours away. And I edited, I used the footage that she filmed to make a music video for her solo record okay. that just came out. It's really good. So, yeah, I'm doing that kind of stuff. Personally, trying to start a new band and working on some new music that's similar to Fuzz and some other bands, but different. Um, so I haven't played out live since the pandemic started. Um, right. So I'm trying to get trying to get back that out there and perform. Um, and then we're also spinning, me and my wife spin records, and we're going to start DJing again. We do, like, curated playlists. Like, you know, we kind of spin records and, like, you know, vinyl. Um, right. And we have different themes and different things. We like to do, like, eclectic music. Like, how can you get from a hip-hop artist to, like, you know, a country song to, you know, a metal song? And, like, how do you switch all up and add it together and connect these different threads and stories? So, again, the, the way that we DJ is kind of similar to all these conversations we're having today. Um, right around different stories and aesthetics and vibes and, you know, storytelling. Yeah. Very cool. Well, this has been great, PJ. I, again, I really do appreciate it. PJSykes.com is your website. Is there anywhere else you would like to tell people, direct people to? No, that's a go to the website. I'm on social media. I've kind of changed it up a little bit, but um, you know, Twitter is what it is now. So I'm not really doing that anymore. Unfortunately I'm on Instagram chair records and all that stuff is out there if, if you just go to my website it'll link you to all those things um different portfolios and then there's links to uh the chair records page and all the socials and all that all right well great it, it has really been fun chatting with you pj i do appreciate it yeah thank you so much i really appreciate you having me on and um being able to share some stories and um i i hope it just you know I always hope that things like this inspire people because that's that's all I want. I want I want to see what you guys are doing. You know, like I, I yeah, you know, I listen to these things all the time, and that's what gets me going is other people, you know, talking about what they're doing and their struggles and their creativity and just do it. Just go do something. You know, make something. Don't wait for people to give you permission. Don't wait for the right tool or the right camera or the right guitar, whatever a keyboard. Just make something. Try something. Do it. I give you permission. Right. How about that? Yeah, I'll offer some advice to end on. Thanks, PJ. Thank you, Billy. I want to thank PJ Sykes again for coming to talk about his creative journey and DIY approach. I hope you found the conversation as inspirational as I did. Please do check out his website, and if there's anything you've been putting off, take this opportunity to go create. Our theme song, Timeless, is by Mike Gutterman and is available on his Bandcamp page at mikegutterman.bandcamp.com. Thanks to the team over at Sunny16 for hosting the feed. You can get in touch with them at sunny16presents at gmail.com. And as John Whitmore might say, always try and be a decent human being.